All right, today uh, we're going to be continuing on in our series in Hebrews, but before we do that, I want to just go ahead and acknowledge that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, at least in this respect, uh, dumb. You know, I know that today is, is Mother's Day and that this sermon, you know, doesn't even, or this, this passage at least, doesn't even use the word mom. Um, and so you might be thinking, does this, does Dan even know that today is Mother's Day? I do know that today is Mother's Day. But the reason why today isn't going to be a sermon on like, you know, seven ways you can be a better mom or encouragement from the gospel for moms or something else is because of, of our firm commitment that what we need as believers, whether you're a mom of one kid or five kids or 15 kids, whether you're about to be a mom, whether you're someone who desperately wants to be a mom and aren't yet, whether you're someone who just uh, lost your mom. No matter where you're at this morning, what we believe as a church is that what we need to hear is, again, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so we're going to just move right along with our series in Hebrews today because we know that this is what we need to hear no matter where we are this morning. And so as you've already noticed, uh, some of the kids have gone out to Kids Connect um, and I think that that's just part of the providence of God that on the second Sunday of the month, it happens to be Mother's Day and moms uh, get to be here and listen without trying to wrangle kids in the middle of service. At least I know that I'm thankful for my wife for that. Um, before we read our passage, I want to talk a little bit about last week. Uh, last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 4, verses uh, 11 through 13, and really focused on verses 12 through 13, we saw that what's happening there is at the end of a chapter where the author has been talking about how uh, we should strive to enter God's rest because the promise of entering God's rest still stands. The, you know, the wilderness generation under Joshua didn't enter into it. And so he's telling us that we should be those who, unlike them, strive by faith and obedience to enter into God's rest. And then he tells us, you know, we don't want to fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then he tells us why in verses 12 and 13. He tells us that uh, because God's word is living and active, because it's sharper than any two-edged sword, because it pierces deeply, because nothing is hidden from God's sight, and all of us are going to have to give an account to him, we don't want to be those who fall in disobedience because, he's telling us, God will know. He will find us out, and this, this book, will be the standard that we will be judged against and have to give an account to. And so as we kind of finish the sermon, we recognize together the reality that this is intimidating, right? To know that God knows all of my mistakes and my faults and my sin. He knows everything about me is scary, and to know that I'm going to have to give an account to him on the basis of those things is terrifying. Unless we also factor in the reality that Christ has covered all of those mistakes, all of those sins, all of those faults. And that when we give an account to God, we don't give the account of our life. We give the account of his life, his perfect life of obedience to his father. We give the account of his death on our behalf that pays for our sin. And so while it could be terrifying for us to know that we are laid bare before God, it's comforting to know that Christ has stood in our place and paid our penalty. And so we finished the sermon that way last week. And like today, what we're going to see is that that wasn't just 
a convenient way to wrap up the end of the sermon. That's where the author of Hebrews goes next. He makes that point for us in our passage today, and he shows us that it's actually much greater than that because we don't just have someone who paid our penalty. We have someone who continues to work on our behalf to give us grace and mercy. So we're going to be reading uh, verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, that it is living and active. We pray that you would send now the the same spirit that you sent to inspire the author of Hebrews to write these words down for our benefit, to help us to understand them and apply them together. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize and and know that Jesus is our great high priest. And because of who he is and what he has done, what he is doing and what he will do on our behalf, help us be those who hold fast to our confession. God, I pray that you would draw us near your throne of grace this morning, even as we draw near to it together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, What we get in our passage this morning is uh, what I'm going to call uh, a command sandwich. Uh, There's a command in verse 14. There's a command in verse 16. So those are kind of like the two pieces of bread on a sandwich. And then uh, at the end of verse 14, or kind of the beginning of verse 14, sorry, and uh, verse 15 There's information, kind of an explanation of why we should be motivated to keep the commands. That's kind of like uh, the toothpick that runs through the sandwich. It's It's what holds the sandwich together. If you go to a restaurant, they stick a toothpick in it. That's keeping the sandwich together so that you can eat it. And then at the very end of verse 16, we get this promise about the last command, which is really about both the commands. And even though it's on the bottom of the piece of bread, you know, it's the uh, the meat of the sandwich or the peanut butter or the chicken salad, whatever it is that gets you to eat two pieces of bread. You know, like if you're eating a sandwich, it's not a bread sandwich. It's a ham sandwich. It's a peanut butter sandwich. It's a chicken salad sandwich. That's what the promise is at the end of the uh, these three verses. And so we're going to walk through this and we're going to use that analogy to help us understand what it is that's happening in this passage and how these commands are tied together. And so, we're going to start by looking at the first piece of bread, which is in verse 14. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's the first command. Let us hold fast our confession. And before we get there, we get the first two words of verse 14, which are since then. And here, I think we might actually read this wrongly. I think I have a slide towards... There we go. We might read it as after. So at one point in my life, I worked at a coffee shop. 
Since then, I don't work at a coffee shop. So we might think that what he's saying is after, or we might think because Kyle was mean to me the other day. Since then, I'm not his friend. Because he was mean to me, I'm not his friend. That didn't really happen. It's just an explanation of how we might understand this. But that's not what he's saying. These aren't, aren't two words smashed together that mean one thing. These are two words that mean two different things. So does somebody here have either an NIV or a New American Standard that they would read uh, the beginning of verse 14 out loud? I know. Therefore what? Just therefore? Therefore since. What about, is that New American? What about NIV? Anybody got NIV? Pretty sure it's the same thing. It's not as close. Therefore since, or since therefore. That's what this actually means. So we think we have another slide here. Yeah, since then is therefore, comma, since, or since, comma, therefore. These are two different connections that he's making. And this is really important because one looks forward to the command. It's since all of this, do this thing. The therefore looks back to what he's just said. So what he's doing with the word therefore is he's picking up everything that he said in chapter four. He's tying in where we got last week, which is we need to be those who strive to enter God's rest because we don't want to be those who, like the wilderness generation, fall in disobedience. We don't want to do that because God's word is living and active, because nothing is hidden from him, because he knows all, and we have to give an account to him. Because of all of that, therefore, he says, since. Since we have a great high priest, we should keep this command. But the problem is that the command is all the way at the end of the verse. Why is the command all the way at the end of the verse? Why does it take him so long to get down there? The reason why is because the toothpick is sticking out at the top of the sandwich. right? If you're going to go to a restaurant and order a sandwich and they serve it to you and it has a toothpick in it, the first thing you do before you start eating the sandwich is you pull the toothpick out because it, you don't want it to stab you when you take a bite. And that's what we need to do if we're going to understand the commands that he's about to give us. We need to kind of pull this toothpick out of the bread and look at it. And that's what we get in the first part of verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Because of this, we should do this command. And he's saying that Jesus as our high priest is the reason. And he keeps going. He talks more about him as the high priest in verse 15. He says, "For." We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And so this statement together, verse 14 and 15, is what holds our sandwich together. It's what uh, keeps it from falling apart. It's what the commands in this passage are based on. And the way we understand how the commands are connected to this statement about who Jesus is as our high priest is these two little words. We've already talked about since, and we also get the word for at the end of verse, or at the beginning of verse 15. What he's telling us is that there's a connection between this statement about Jesus as our high priest and the command that he gives us in verse 14 and the command that he's going to give us in verse 16. He's saying that the reason why we keep the commands, the reason why we should be motivated to keep the commands is because Jesus is our high priest. And we're going to talk more about what that means. But first, we need to understand that the motivation for doing the commands is the fact that he is our high priest and who he is as our high priest. And that's where the analogy breaks down, right? Because we're never motivated to eat a sandwich because of the toothpick. But 
it's also going to break down in a lot of other places too. What we need to understand, though, is that we're motivated to keep the commands because Jesus is our high priest. So let's understand more about what it means that he's our high priest. So he says, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. What's happened up to this point in Hebrews is that the author of Hebrews is again saying over and over again, he's saying Jesus is better. He's better than this. He's better than that. He's greater than this. He's greater than that. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than prophets. He's better than Joshua. And now he's going to turn to kind of widen his focus to take on the entire system of religion under the old covenant. And that's kind of represented in the person of the high priest. And so he's going to spend the next few chapters ringing this bell again and again and again and again. He's going to say Jesus is a better high priest. He's the greatest high priest. And here he tells us why. Because he's not just a typical high priest. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, he's not a human high priest. He's different. He's above them. He says he's passed through the heavens. What is above the heavens? Who sits enthroned above the heavens? The Psalms tell us God does. And so when the author of Hebrews tells us that he's passed through the heavens, he's telling us he is quantitatively different than the high priest of the Old Testament. He is categorically greater. They may have passed in to heaven upon their death, but Jesus passes through the heavens. He goes to where God is. He sits enthroned above everything. That's why he is our high priest who's greater than any other high priest ever has been, ever is, or ever will be because he's passed through the heavens. The next thing he tells us in verse 15, he kind of shifts his focus. In verse 14, he's focused on how much different and distinct and greater and holier Jesus is than any of the other high priests. But in verse 15, he talks about the personal connection we have towards Christ. He says, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Here, we need to remember that Jesus' passing through the heavens was a round trip. Right? He didn't just ascend into heaven. He also came down from heaven. He took on flesh. He was born of a woman. He was made like us. And in verse 15, the author of Hebrews is telling us that because he was made like us, he's able to sympathize with us. So when we understand the connection between his sympathizing with us, it's helpful to think about the word sympathy. It's sympathetic. Right? This doesn't work with all words. If you try this with butterfly, you're going to be really confused. But with some words, like ones that are come from the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was written in, it works quite well because we have the word pathetic. I think we all know what that means. And we have sim, which is a Greek preposition, which means with. And when the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He's saying that Jesus became pathetic with us. I know that sounds kind of irreverent to call Jesus pathetic. The human part of him was. He took on our weakness. He got sick. He got hungry. He got tired. He uh, was around people who sinned against him. He experienced human weakness in this broken world like we do. 
Obviously, there's a very big difference between him and us. And that's why he's sympathetic and not empathetic, because he never entered into our weakness in the form of sinning, which is what the author of Hebrews is going to tell us next. But it's important for us to remember that even though Jesus is the one who sits enthroned above the heavens, he's also the one who came down from heaven to enter into our pain so that he could redeem us. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are. And here, I can guess what you're saying, what you're thinking, because I know what I think when I read this verse. When the author of Hebrews tells me that Jesus was tempted in every way like I am, I think, really? I mean, because he lived a long time ago in a very, 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 very conservative culture. No internet, no pornography, no television, no movies, no, you know, crazy fashion trends. Like He lived in a very different culture than we did, and so it makes me think, was, was he really tempted like I'm tempted? Or was it maybe just a little bit easier for him because his culture was different and he doesn't struggle with the same things we struggle with? Drugs, alcohol, weren't as readily available then as they are now. I think there's two reasons why I am wrong when I think that way falsely and when you are wrong when you think that way falsely. And that's because of what the author of Hebrews tells us. The first one is because he simply tells us this. He says very specifically, Christ was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And so God's word is either true, and this is true, or it's not true. And if it's not true, we should all go home because we're wasting our time here. But if it is true, then even what he tells us here, which we struggle to believe is true, The second reason we should absolutely believe that Jesus was tempted as we are and yet greater than we are is because of what he finishes verse 15 with. He says, Christ was tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. He experienced much greater temptation than we will ever experience because he never gave in. When I turned 16, I drove a 94 Chevy S10. It's a five-speed and being a young man, then, and maybe still, I don't know. I liked going fast. Uh, I don't go fast anymore because we have kids in the car and that'd be crazy. And we can't afford to pay a speeding ticket. But then I didn't care. And so I drove fast. And I soon figured out that on 94 to 97 S10s in Sonomas, there is a thing called a governor, which is a speed limiter. Somewhere between 95 and 98 miles an hour, the engine cuts out. And you can't go any faster because it won't let you. It doesn't just shut off. It just stops the gas going uh, into the engine. So you can't keep accelerating. And so my high-power 2.2-liter four-cylinder engine never experienced what it was like to go 100 miles an hour. The chassis and the frame and the aerodynamics, which, I mean, an S10 is highly aerodynamic, 
never experienced the strain that it would have experienced if it got up to 100 or 110 or 120 and I crashed. And our experience of temptation is a lot like that. Right? Our experience of it is limited. Because when it gets to a point that's too much for us to take, we give in. The engine cuts out and we don't experience what it would have been like to go 100 miles an hour. When he tells us that Jesus was without sin, we know that he never gave in. His experience of temptation was unlimited. And so he was tempted in every way as we are. And then he kept going and going and going and going. So we know no matter how much we resist temptation, he's been there and passed it. So we can have confidence that we do indeed have a high priest who can be sympathetic with our weakness. Because he's experienced it to the greatest extents. Because of this, because Jesus is our great high priest who passed through the heavens, because he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness, because he himself was without sin, we should do the commands that he tells us to do. So let's go back to verse 14 and see this first piece of bread he gives us. Let us hold fast to our confession. That's the command. Let us hold fast to our confession. That's what we're supposed to do. The word hold fast it's also used in the Gospels to talk about how the Pharisees clung to their traditions and their rules and regulations that they had tacked on the Old Testament. They zealously kept them down to the smallest letters of the law. This word's also used in a technical sense to talk about grabbing someone to arrest them. So it's like handcuffing somebody. He's saying, this is the way that we should hold fast to our confession of Christ. We should zealously cling to it. And the word confession here, I think, is the perfect word to describe what he's talking about. Because confession isn't just something you think. It's not just something you believe. It's not just something you hold to. It's also something you speak out loud. So it's both, at the same time, an inward belief and an outward expression of that inward belief. That's what he's telling us to hold fast to. That's what he's telling us to kind of ferociously cling to. Both our faith in Christ and our obedience to him. We hold fast to that and don't let it go. We already know why we do that. We do that because he's our great high priest. That's our motivation for keeping the command. But how do we hold fast? I think the way we hold fast comes with the second command at the end of verse 16. It's the bottom slice of bread. He says, let us then, in light of the fact that he's given us this command, in light of the fact that Jesus is our high priest, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our help or in our time of need. Because Jesus is your high priest, we keep this command too. We're motivated to do this. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to draw near to the throne of grace. This is the command. He's telling us, draw near the throne of grace, but it's really more like an invitation. Right, a command is like when parents, you tell your kids, go to bed. Right, you have to forcibly seize them to take them to bed and then hold them there so they go to sleep. This is like, hey kids, eat ice cream. 
Right? You only have to say that once. They don't need repeated assurance to do that work. That's what this should be to us. Let us, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Yes, the one who sits on this throne is the one who he told us about in verse uh, 13 last week. No creatures hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's who sits on the throne, but he tells us it's a throne of grace. And this is really important for us to get. Because I remember a point in college where I was sitting in a church listening to a preacher and he was talking about, you know, when we come before God. Um, and he was now, I think, imparting fear in people. Not fear as in reverence or respect, but fear as in terror. And he told the story about like Uzzah in the Old Testament where, you know, the ark is on its way to Jerusalem and the ox stumbles and the ark is falling off the cart. And Uzzah reaches out to grabs it. And what happens to Uzzah? He dies. And the point is God is holy. We should tremble before him. We should be afraid of entering his presence because if we do, what happened to Uzzah might happen to us. But the author of Hebrews tells us a very different story. He says, let us then, because Jesus is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, because he lived a perfect life, because he died a death on the cross, pain for the penalty of our sins, because he rose again and ascended into heaven and intercedes on our behalf, because of who he is and what he's done for us, the throne of God is not a throne of fear, but a throne of grace. It's a place where we can draw near with confidence. Now, I'm not saying be foolish and irreverent. But I don't think we need to be in terror either. If we're apart from Christ, it's not a throne of grace for us. We're still in that place that we talked about last week where we have to give an account to him for everything that he knows about us. But for those of us who have trusted in him, the author of Hebrews is very clear to tell us, not just tell us, but command us to draw near, not just in proximity, but with confidence, because it is a throne of grace. And here I think the second command, let us draw near, is the way we do the first one. We hold fast to our confession by drawing near to the throne of grace. So the question is, how do we draw near? the throne of grace. I think the first thing we must do is we must recognize that if we're in Christ, then the throne of grace has already been brought near to us. Right In the Gospel of Matthew at the end, we see the story of the, the rending of the veil in the temple. When Jesus dies on the cross, Matthew tells us that the, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That curtain is what separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies was a place where only one guy could go once a year, the high priest. People like us weren't allowed to go in there. We weren't great enough. We weren't significant enough. We couldn't enter into that place where God was. And when Matthew tells us that, it symbolizes the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, the pathway to God was open for all. It's exactly what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We're the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
What Peter's telling us, what the story in Matthew is telling us is that one of the purposes of Jesus' death on the cross was to bridge the gap between us and God. And so as we begin to think about what it means for us to draw near the throne of grace, we need to remember that it's already been brought near to us in Christ. The gap has been closed. We have access to him. I think so some of the how we draw near is simply remembering the reality that we already have drawn near. Second thing I think we do is we are obedient to the command. Right? Just because Christ has drawn us near through the cross doesn't mean that we automatically have a fantastic relationship with God in prayer. It doesn't mean that we instinctively draw near to the throne when we have a time of need. There still needs to be obedience and effort on our part that's empowered by the grace that he's shown us on the cross. And so the way we draw near, this, this word, draw near, it's a, it's a movement. Come close. Go near to someone. That's what it's, it's talking about. And so there's something for us to do. And so I think one thing we do is we go where we know God is. Last week, we talked about his word and how it's the only sure and steady revelation we have of who he is and what he's done. So if we want to know more about who God is, if we want to experience more of him in our relationship with him, we should be those who are reading his word. We also should be those who spend time in prayer with him. Not in a, you know, trying to convince him to show up, but in a recognition that he's there. I think we also go other places we know where God will be based on what he tells us in his word, right? He tells us, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So if we want to draw near to God, we should draw near to God's people because he said he'll be with his people. He's also said in the Great Commission that he'd be with us to the end of the age. He'll be with us on mission. So if we want to draw near to God, we should go to where God is. We should spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, spend time with his people, and spend time on his mission because that's where he's told us he'd be. I think the third thing we need to recognize is that there are times, and some of you might be here this morning, where you feel like you've tried this. You've tried to draw near to God with confidence and he's just not there. I think the, what we do in this situation is we recognize that this command, both of these commands, are in the present tense. What those mean is that it's a continual process. It's not let us draw near one time with confidence. It's let us be those who are drawing near, those who continue to draw near, those who draw near and draw near and draw near and draw near and keep drawing near. That's what we're commanded to do. We're not commanded to draw near for 30 seconds and say, well, he's not here, so I'm out. Or a month, or a year, or five years. We're called to have a lifetime of drawing near to him with confidence. And there's a promise tied to the second command. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. If we draw near to him, if we keep drawing near to him, we can be confident that we will receive grace and mercy. I think the opposite is also true. If we don't draw near, if we don't keep drawing near, 
we cannot be confident that we're going to receive grace and find mercy to help in our time of need. God is gracious enough that he'll probably give us some anyway. But we don't have this promise if we're not doing the command. So the question then is, when are we in need? When do we need grace and mercy from God? Always, right? We live in a time of need. Because God is who he is, we are always in need of his grace and mercy. And so we should always be those who are drawing near with confidence because we always need to receive grace and mercy. At the same time, I think there are specific experience of times of need for us. When we're tempted, when we're worried, when we're anxious, when we're in conflict with people, when you know our kids wake up in the middle of the night and are puking, when uh, we experience loss or you know, financial trouble or we're trying to make a decision, there are uh, specific times where we need mercy. And in those moments, instead of, being, instead of those being times where we turn to someone else or turn to something else, we should be those who draw near the throne of grace, recognizing that it's only there we're going to find what we really need. I think that we should begin to make that our default response to need. Whenever we experience a time of need, which is all the time and yet some specific times, our response should be, I need to draw near to the throne of grace because it's only there that I'm going to get the help that I need. And what would it look like if for us as a church, we did that not just for ourselves, but for others? We recognized, hey, they're sick or hey, they just experienced loss or they're struggling or whatever. And we began not only to draw near the throne of grace for ourselves, but also began to draw near the throne of grace for each other that we might receive. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Don't be so focused on yourself that you forget that those all around you also need grace and mercy. We hold fast our confession by continually drawing near to the throne of grace. We do so with confidence, not with fear. Because it's only there that we're going to receive grace and mercy. And if you're here this morning and this is something that you've never done, you're not uh, someone who's in Christ. You haven't trusted in Him for salvation. Right? Drawing near to the throne of grace, it's not, it's not a one-time thing. It's a continual thing. But there is a first time. Right? There's got to come some point in our lives where we say, I'm not going to seek satisfaction in myself or something else. I'm not going to find help in myself or something else, but instead I'm going to find it in the only place I can. So I'm going to draw near to this throne of grace. If you're here this morning, I would encourage you to do that. To begin today a lifetime of drawing near to his throne. Because as we saw, Christ suffered once for sins. The one who is righteous for all of us who aren't. So that he could bring us to God. So that he could bridge that gap that we cannot bridge ourselves. Regardless of where you are this morning, right? whether you're a mom or a husband or a student or a generic human being, 
we're those who need to be drawing near the throne of grace. And so as we take the Lord's Supper today, I pray and hope that this would be a time where we collectively repent of the fact that we don't draw near His throne near as much as we need to. And that we would ask Him by His Spirit to empower us towards obedience to be those who do begin to draw near His throne more and more and more. That that would become our natural, instinctive, default response to need. And then, whenever you're ready, the the bread and the cup, which represent the reality that Jesus' death uh, happened, that it paid for our sins. His blood was shed for us. His body was broken for us. I would invite you to come with us to celebrate that as a church. If you haven't been here before, uh, we just go take some time to prepare our hearts before the Lord's Supper, and then we just go through past the table uh, kind of at our own leisure, but there's still a line that kind of forms. And then whenever you're done with that, return to your seats and we'll continue worship together. So I'll pray and then we'll take that time. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, that he passed through the heavens and came down. And that because of what he's done for us, we can have confidence that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted as we are. One who knows what we need even before we do. God, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to hold fast our confession of Christ. That we would do so continually by continually drawing near your throne. God, we know that we need to. We know that we need grace and mercy and we know that your throne is the only place we find it. Help us to respond obediently to drawing near with confidence. Pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today that you would send your spirit to encourage us to repent of sin and confess it to you and to others if we need to. And that we would be able to celebrate what you've done for us with clean consciences and with renewed commitment to obediently keeping your word.